Today we are continuing in week two of a series uh, that we started last week called Worship as Life, and we're going through just a couple different kind of major themes in the book of Psalms. And uh, today we're going to be looking at a psalm, so if we are going to read it, uh, so if you have scriptures uh, on you, that's great, you'll need them. If not, there's some on the back there. Uh, you can grab a Bible back there if you want, and if you don't have one at all and you want to keep that one, that's fine, you can do that. Um, but today what we're going to be talking about is, is this idea that when we, when we practice worship as a way of life, it prepares us to handle the worst of life. And I'm excited about sort of the narrative that we're going to look at today behind the psalm uh, that we're going to read together. It's pretty neat. But I want to start by kind of giving some, a bit of a story here to kind of give it an analogy. Uh, so I'm helping coach my son's baseball team. And I've done this for a couple years now. And if you've ever been involved in kids' sports, you know in the early years, it's like nuts. Like there's just like uh, this gang of children running around a soccer ball, like nothing really constructive is happening. Baseball. It's like every kid just walks, like no one actually gets a hit, no one actually pitches well, like it's just terrible. But finally, at this age, what I'm finding uh, with uh, my middle son is that these, these boys are old enough now that we can, they're actually starting to have some skills and some talents that we can actually work with. And we're starting to practice with them these drills that prepare them for the real game. And so I don't know if you follow baseball at all, but there's a lot more that goes on than just, oh, I got the ball. What should I do with it? Like, it's drilled into their heads what they should do defensively, offensively. And so we've been practicing with the boys. And so when we get into game time situations, the intensity that we've had in practice comes to fruition in the game. And they know what to do. They know how to react. They know where to go, where to throw the ball, how to hit, and all these things. And so the truth is, it's the same thing with other areas in life, right? I mean, like, there's, there's firemen who practice on fake buildings so that when they go into a real building and try to rescue people, like, they've been in a tough situation like this. They know how to react. They know what they're doing. Uh, my daughter was just in a musical. They practiced the musical for, for months until the day of when it was a real, you know, the real thing, and they were ready for it. So, you know, students take prep exams and all these things. We practice for the real thing. Well, one of the things I'm trying to set up today is that it's the same thing with worship in our lives, that, you know, last week we looked at how worship is part of our identity as worshipers of, of God, as created ones, and, and that we can root our life in that and find life there. But what do we do when life is, doesn't feel worshipful? What do we do when life doesn't feel great, when life gets tough, when we feel abandoned, hopeless, anxious, insecure? What do we do when we feel attacked or weak or unloved or unlovable. But what I would argue is that worship as a way of life prepares us for the worst of life. That when we make it a daily habit to worship God in good times and in mediocre, when the tough stuff comes along, when when the intensity of life is ratcheted up, like in the baseball game, we already know how to react. We've been training ourselves in that way. And what we'll see in the scripture that we're studying today is that God is our refuge. That he is our refuge and he's our strength in good times and in bad. But the daily practice of worshiping God as our refuge in good times makes it a whole lot easier to run to him in the tough times because we know the route that we've carved out. We, we know that we worship him all the time. So today we're going to be looking at Psalm 46, um, but I want to set up you know, a little bit of where the teaching points are going to be coming from by telling you a little bit of the narrative behind Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is a famous psalm, 
but it comes from a pretty amazing story in the Old Testament uh, about King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was a ruler over Judah, which was sort of the, the southern part of the kingdom of Israel. And he took over the reign when he was 25 years old. So a young man took it over from his father, and he reigned for 29 years. Um, so we're going to look at his life. So here's the thing. If you're a reader and you want to look at this stuff later this week, here's some passages that you can write down. If you're taking notes, uh, 2 Kings 18, 2 Kings 18, 2 Chronicles 29, and Isaiah 36. This gives you sort of some background reading, you know, so you can read several chapters about kind of where this psalm is generated. Um, you can start in those chapters and, and read forward. But here's the thing. So King Hezekiah takes over in what was, used to be the unified kingdom of Israel that God had put together with 12 tribes that he'd taken out of Egypt. He had given them the kingdom, but the kingdom had broken in two, and a bunch of tribes stayed to the north, and they became known as Israel. And there were some tribes that stayed to the south, and they were called Judah. And this tribe in the south, they had the, the, the temple city of Jerusalem. This was their area, and they had the temple worship there where God was worshipped, and it was sort of you know, the big deal in the kingdom. During this time, the, the empire of Assyria was rampaging the region, and Assyria is going all over with King Sennacherib, and he's going around, and they're destroying city after city, and he actually conquers Israel and carts them off, and it's the first sort of diaspora that happens, this exile that Israel goes into, and Judah yet has stayed intact. For 14 years of Hezekiah's reign, Israel or Judah has remained untouched. Untouched. Jerusalem has not fallen. The walls are still intact. The, the temple is still intact. But what you need to know is during those 14 years of Hezekiah's reign, he, he reinstituted godly worship at the temple. Because what had happened is his father, King Ahaz, was incredibly corrupt. His father, Ahaz, had, had sacrificed one of his sons in a fire, what was something that the, you know, the idol worshipers around them would do, this kind of pagan worship. He had set up all these idols all over the territory, and it says that he would offer incense all over the place. He would go and he would just worship God anywhere, when, when, or different gods all over the place, when Yahweh had said, worship me here at the temple. Just an incredibly corrupt man. And he, he actually, it says, he made a deal. This king Ahaz had made a deal with the king of Assyria and out of deference for him started kind of removing his own throne and removing any kind of royalty that God had given him because he said, well, actually, the king of Assyria, he's the real king. It's just a, a kind of a sick time in Judah's history. But what we see in 2 Kings 18 is that Hezekiah says, I'm going to be different than my father. I'm going to worship God. And he starts cutting down all the Asherah poles, these, these idols that had been set up all over the region. He, he cleanses the temple, it says, and he gets rid of this fake altar that his father had brought into the temple, and he reinstitutes temple worship. He even starts celebrating the Passover again, which had been put aside. He even invites the Israelites, the, the, the far-off cousins who had abandoned everything. He says, maybe you could even come back with us. Come back and worship God with us during the Passover. And some of them even did. Fascinating thing he does is that the bronze snake, if you remember the bronze snake that, that God told Moses to make when the people were suffering and they were to look at it and be healed, well, they still had that in the temple. Well, apparently, under his father, people had started worshiping this bronze snake. And Hezekiah says, I'm done with it. And he smashes it to pieces. Even this old, this religious artifact, he said, let's not worship the past. Let the listeners hear. Okay, so 
he says, I'm going to do this. We're going to reinstitute temple worship. And he gets rid of all these idols. And he's worshiping God with all of his heart. And he's calling the people back to godly worship. He's developing worship in good times as a way of life. Preparing them for the worst of life that was to come. Assyria ends up conquering all the fortified cities around Jerusalem. And then they show up literally at the city gate. The head of the army shows up, the secretary shows up, and some other guy, forget his name. They show up outside of the temple or outside of the city gates, and they start taunting the people inside the walls. They're taunting them in Hebrew, in their native tongue. Remember that. And they're saying to them, we're going to destroy you like we've destroyed everybody else. And they start lying to them and say, you know what, your God actually told us that we're going to have victory over you. And that, in, in a hilarious thing in my mind, one of the, the leaders who's out there listening to them from inside Jerusalem says, hey, would you mind speaking in, in another language that we understand? Don't speak in Hebrew so that the people can hear you because they're getting freaked out. And they're like, no, 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 we're going to taunt you in Hebrew so everybody can hear it. And everybody's afraid. And they're freaking everybody out. And everybody's scared to death about what's going to happen using their own language to taunt them. One of the fascinating things about this story, though, to me, is that before this happened, King Hezekiah had the wisdom enough to know and to see that the walls were closing in around them, that he sent his leaders out into the countryside, and he said, stop up all the wells and the streams that surround the city. There's no reason that these enemies of God should come here and drink our clean water. Stop those up. So they stop up all these wells, so there's no clean water available outside of the city. So what they did was, they, he had them dig a 1,700-foot-long channel underground called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And they dig this channel underground to bring water from a spring on the edge of the city into the middle of the city. So they have water, clean water to drink, in case a siege ever happened, which is what Assyria ends up doing, putting them under siege and holding them there. Eventually, the people are scared to death, and Hezekiah calls them into the square. And this is what he says in Second Chronicles 32. He says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And after consulting the, the prophet Isaiah, who was like his pastor, he, he, they call on God to protect them. And he says in Isaiah 37, Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these other peoples in their lands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. Do you hear what he's doing there? He's appealing to God's glory. He's appealing to, to, God's, to the narrative that God has been writing, that he is the king of the world. That in the end, he will be shown to be true and that all nations will worship him. He was appealing to 
The fact that, God, you get the glory when your enemies are defeated. And that night, this incredible thing happens. They wake up at the break of day, the next day after this prayer, and they see that 185,000 Assyrians have died. This army that had surrounded them, this nation that had been conquering the world around them, thousands upon thousands of them have died. Scholars speculate that from the stopping up of the wells that maybe the water was contaminated and that this cholera, this disease had spread in the camp and it just gained momentum to where so many of them die that eventually Sennacherib says, we're leaving. We're out. We're not going to be able to take this city like we thought we could. And they leave. There's actually historical proof of this. There's a a cuneiform uh, clay tablet called Sennacherib's Prism that actually says that he defeated this city, he defeated this city, he defeated this city. But when it comes to Jerusalem, it just says he put it under siege. He defeated this city. He defeated this city. It's just like this little, like, we didn't quite get there. They still list it. Just to me, it's just another historical proof of God's goodness to the people of Judah. So it's this divine miracle that happens showing God's glory over the nations. So with that in mind, I wanted to give you the context of where this psalm comes from today. If you have a copy of the scriptures, turn to Psalm 46. This is what he says. Now, this could have been written during the siege. Could have been written as a way to encourage the people, or maybe it was written later to celebrate. Either way, it's based on this story. This is what they say. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their singing, with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You can see that the celebration that's happening, the the faith that the people have to look to God as the refuge in the midst and because of this Assyrian siege that's happening around them. So I want to look at today is just some, some basic points that I feel like we can take away from this for shaping our lives in worship, for remembering who God is to prepare us for the difficult things that we're going to go through. So if you look back at verse 1 to 3, and at the beginning of the psalm there, it says, God is our refuge and strength. He's our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. So in this this worst of times scenario, the writer of this psalm is calling the people to look to God as the refuge and strength. They've been doing this for 14 years. Remember, Hezekiah has called them back during the good times, during the times of peace. He's called them back to, to true godly worship. 
So that now in this desperate time, they're familiar with this. They know who to go to. They know where to run. They know to go to God as their refuge and as their strength. And what's behind this concept, right, this refuge and strength thing, is that they need a place to hide and that they're weak. God is the refuge. He's the strength. They need a place to hide. He is the strong one. And because they've been practicing this in the good times, it's easier to have faith to do so in the tough times. So my question for us this morning is, where do we run to for our refuge? What do you look to for strength? How are you training yourself to worship in the good or mediocre times, the normal times, so that in the worst of times, you're prepared to run to God rather than elsewhere? And here's what I would argue. We all do it. We all run elsewhere for refuge. We all run elsewhere looking for strength, for self-satisfaction, and for self-worth. But what I would argue is that the places that we run to for refuge when, when we're weak actually shun us in our weakness. Think about it. We, we run to our jobs, right? Some of us, we run to our jobs for performance and, and for self-worth. And for a time, they make us feel strong. They make us feel safe and secure. But the minute that you're weak or underperforming at that place, what happens? That refuge is gone. You're chastised, you're cast aside, you're let go, so they find somebody to replace you, and so forth. Or as a student, we take refuge in our good grades and think, okay, I'm strong, I'm good, I'm going to study hard, I'm gonna, I've got self-worth because of my grades, but the minute you, you falter in that, get a B, get a C, it's no longer a refuge because you weren't able to keep it up. You weren't able to do enough, but you need to try harder, do better, study more. We make money a refuge, and, and we work, and we work to either feel secure in our money, whether you have a lot or a little, it doesn't matter. We are secure by our finances, or we try to look good with our money or impress with our money. We find refuge in it, but it's really not a refuge at all. The minute a big bill comes, we feel the tyranny to make more money. We feel the tyranny to go and keep providing for ourselves. When the, when the neighbor gets a nicer car than us or whatever it is, somebody looks nicer than us on Instagram, whatever, I don't know, whatever, we need to make more money to buy nicer stuff. See, it's not a refuge at all. We think it is until we're weak and then we need to do it more. We need to do it more. We need to do it more. It's not a refuge at all. We can't be weak in those places of refuge. They're dependent on our strength. But what we find with God is that he loves us in our weakness. That's right. He loves us in our weakness, and he says, come to me. Come to me in your weakness. I will be your refuge and strength. I am the strong one. I know you're weak. Come and be weak. Don't try and be strong for those, those other idols, those places of refuge that will chew you up and spit you out so quickly. We don't need to earn it or, or strive to achieve it. And the more that we practice this daily, believing this and worshiping this God who loves us in our weakness, the more we believe it when we head into struggle, when we head into hard times. The more we believe that God is our refuge in the light, the more we will believe it when we head into the darkness. The more we believe it in the the, the daily plane of our existence, the, the flat plane of our daily lives, the more we'll believe it when we go into the valleys. So if we are daily practicing worship of God as the strong one, the supplier of needs, the giver of life, the keeper of our security, the lover of our soul, 
when we are pushed into the worst places of life, it only makes sense to run there as weak ones rather than trying to be strong and provide for our own refuge. We don't count on our own arm of flesh, right, to provide for our own refuge. We count on the arm of God to do so. Look at me in verse verse 8. The author says this. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. The, the author's saying he does all these, these things of justice and protection in the world for his glory. And then he says, in light of these things, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know him. I think what's, what's wrapped up in this is, is the idea of stopping striving. Stopping trying to do all of these things that clearly only God can do in the world. The word here for, for be still is, is akin to like a rope that's gone slack. There's no tension on it anymore. It's not holding anything down. It's not pulling anything. It's just gone limp. Or, or it's, it's like arms that have been working to hold everything, to do things, to work, to be, to be strong, have gone limp and are just at your side. No longer fists raised, hands working. They're just at your side, dropped, resting. In essence, God is commanding his people here to be still, to rest, to be quiet, to stop striving, to Sabbath in a way. You know, our God loves Sabbath. He loves rest. He loves showing that, hey, you know what? You can take a day off. You know why? Because I'm God. I've got it under control. You can let your arms go slack because I've got it. I'm God. It's under control. Let him do the work. Worship him as the great one that gets stuff done and stop trying to get it all done by myself. This reminded me of a story in my life. Um, If I've told this story here before, forgive me, just nod and say that's a great story. Um, there was a time when Jess and I were first married, and uh, I had a, a 1988 Ford Taurus. It was awesome. It was maroon. It was a killer car. It's one of the only good cars Ford's made in the last 30 years. Anyway, uh, it lasted. It was great until it caught on fire. So I guess I just probably undid what I said about the Taurus. But the, the transmission line blew on it. There was fire coming out the bottom of it, and it was a, a disastrous end to an awesome car. And so we needed a vehicle. We were in like panic mode. I was like, I'm like, I'm a husband. I'm going to provide. I'm going to get a new car and it's going to be great. I, don't, I was a senior in college. I don't know how I thought I was going to do this. So I call my dad and I'm like, hey, I need a car. Let's, let's look for a car. So my dad, he's a good guy. Let's, let's not critique him too heavily for this story. He finds me a Jeep Wagoneer. Now I'm going back in time. I'm actually going to a car older than the car that I had. It was a Jeep Wagoneer. You ever seen this? They have the wood siding. There was, what about Bob, like the Jeep Wagoneer? This one didn't have the wood siding. I don't know why. It was an ugly vehicle. It was white. It was just, I don't know why we bought it, but we did. I didn't pray about it. I didn't wait. We just bought this thing. We get the car. We get this Jeep Wagoneer, and I don't know when it was. It might have been that night. We're like, hey, look, this door doesn't work. You have to get in from the passenger side. I've already paid for it. Like, some, like when I got there, he must have had the door open, you know? Like, I can't even believe it. We're driving one day, and the window, the driver's side window just goes, and just falls down. I mean, it was such a piece of crap. 
So we buy this thing, and I'm like, this is a disaster. I don't know why we did this. I like, I'm learning my lesson immediately. Like, I didn't pray about this at all. I didn't ask the Lord to do anything. I just worked. I just made it happen. Long story short, like three days after we buy this thing, our landlord says, hey, um, do you guys need a car? Somebody I work with has a 1990 Honda Civic wagon. It's got 100,000 miles on it. They want $1,500 for it. The original owners, they've taken care of it. It's the same amount of money that I paid for the piece of junk. And she says, hey, I've got this car. We buy that car. Eventually, God spared us, and we were able to get our money back out of some guy you know, who wanted to collect Jeep Wagoneers. I don't know. So he bought this thing. Long way of saying, I didn't wait at all. I didn't sit still. I didn't allow God to be God. I sought my own protection, my own well-being, and I strived to get after it. And I should have just been still. If I'd waited three days, waited three days for God to do something and just prayed about it, my neighbor had this, the whole plan was in motion already. Stop striving. Rest. I know this isn't quite the Assyrian siege on my life, but... (laughs) This is normal life, right? I mean, most of us aren't under the Assyrian siege, right? But we go through junk like this, and we can either panic and strive for hard, or we can just trust that the God of nations will care for his people, that he will provide, that he will seek his own glory and show it in his people's lives. So, one of the things that I want to draw out of this, too, is that That fascinating part of the story to me about Hezekiah is that he stopped up the wells outside of the town. He stopped up the streams so that the enemies couldn't come and drink and find life. I kind of think there's there's some application there to our lives that that all too often we we give life to the enemy outside of our walls. We we allow the enemy to come and and drink and and gain life and, and start speaking to us in our own native tongue, saying, hey, maybe maybe you do need to strive real hard. Maybe you, yeah, you know what, you need to take this matter into your own hands and go and make it happen. You need to make enough money to care for your family. Yeah, you, actually, you need to make some more money. You better, you better be really secure. You know, you better look a different way. You better look better. You better look a certain type, of, like on and on. And, and, and we allow the enemy to, to, to drink and have life outside of our city walls. And I feel like there's times when, and I've said this before, I feel like there's times when we need to say, no, no, I'm stopping that up. There is, there is some, some effort on our part to say, no, 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 no. I'm going to believe the gospel here. I'm going to believe that God is going to protect me. I'm going to believe, looking at the past, that all that God has done, that he will care for me. I don't need to allow you to drink that water anymore and have any rain in my life. Does that make sense? I don't know if that's clear, but I think there is something to that in our lives, that we don't take refuge in God and we allow other people to have, or the enemy to have power over our lives when we take refuge in God and say, be gone, enough. I don't believe you. I don't need this anymore. I have water that comes from someplace else, which brings me to verse four. Look at verse four. Remember what had happened. He stops up all these wells. He stops up these streams. He digs this channel in through Jerusalem so that they have water. Look at this verse four. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. 
a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Do you, do you get it? Do you see the imagery here? Hezekiah has stopped up these streams so that the enemy can't drink, and, and he's dug a tunnel and made a way for pure, flowing, life-giving water to come into the heart of the city, into the middle of God's people, and to provide for them so that they could withstand the siege of the enemy. Friends, here's the truth. When we make it a practice to worship God as a way of life, we find that spring of life-giving water welling up inside of our lives. We, we, we find it in the, in the darkest, in the driest, in the scariest moments of our lives, even when they're under siege. If you've heard these stories before, or, you know, if you've read any scriptures, you know that there's this, there's this famous interaction that Jesus has in John chapter 4 with uh, the Samaritan woman at the well. Maybe you know this story, but it's an interesting story. Jesus is chatting with this woman. His disciples have gone into town to get some food, and he's, he's standing there with this woman, and, and she, he says, you know, can you get me some water? And they have this inter- interaction, and it comes to the light that, that she's had multiple husbands, multiple lovers of sorts. And he kind of challenges her about this in a gentle way, but he challenges her that she's been running to the refuge of husband after husband. And now she's on her sixth husband or lover. And Jesus says to her, listen to what he says to her, everyone who drinks this water from this well he's pointing to, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Or later in the same book, in John 7, Jesus says in the temple, he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, John says, he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Do you see it? Do these people living in a besieged world of religion and striving and struggle and running to other sources of refuge, Jesus says, I'm the living water. And not only that, I'm going to be the living water in you. And not only that, it will flow out of you to the world around you. Friends, this is a mystery. This is a mystery how this works and and, and how it feels. And you can't really explain this and say, here's what you should do to experience this. I can only offer an anecdotal story, okay? Okay. So just this week, I was, I was really struggling uh, emotionally because I'd been camping out in a refuge other than God, other than God's love and care. Uh, I'd been finding my acceptance in my own good ideas. I love coming up with ideas. I love having a team go with my ideas and adopt them and, and see what happens. Like, I love that kind of teamwork, but I also I start to land on self-righteousness sometimes too. Like My ideas are the best. We should do all of my ideas. I have no bad ideas. Like, this is the world that I, this is the refuge that I start to find in my self-worth. And honestly, that refuge failed me this week. And it wasn't, I told Adam beforehand, when I tell this story, it didn't have to do with hope, just so you know. It failed me because I found out that my, one of my ideas had been ignored. And actually, worse than that, not only had my idea been ignored, but then somebody else had my bright idea And that person got the credit for that good idea. And I was like, yo, that was my idea. I had that idea five years ago. 
I, that, that, I should be getting credit for that. I wanted credit for it then. I want credit for it now. A rump. <laughs> Man, I was ticked. I was sad. And that sounds lame, but I was seeking refuge in it. So after having a pity party uh, for myself, I, I realized, you know what? I, I need to stop up these streams and these wells outside of my city walls and stop giving the enemy life. So I chose to worship and say, Jesus, my life comes from you. You've told me that you are living water from me. You've told me that in my life, you've dug this canal up into the middle of my life and given me living water, and you want to flow in me and through me and out of me, this living water of life. And I asked him to validate who I am in him as a co-heir of his, as a child of God. And all I can say is that after repeating this theme, even still today, to myself, just kind of some self-talk. After repeating this theme to myself a few days this week, the siege started to lift, okay? And I still want to slip into it, right? But it started to lift because I'm believing that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has come to give me living water and that I can find refuge in God's love being weak. But I don't need to find refuge in my own good ideas and self-righteousness and all of that. So again, is this the Assyrian siege on my life? no. Is my life as stressful as theirs was? Not a chance. But the enemy of the gospel is real. And he prowls around trying to destroy us, accusing me of lame stuff, accusing you of lame things in your lives, telling us who we are. And he has no business doing that. And he'll keep doing it. So I need to be worshiping God at all times. In the good times, in the mediocre, worshiping God, saying, this is who who you've said I am. I come to you in my weakness daily. I come to you daily in my weakness so that when we get into these hard times, we know the route, we know the path well to continue worshiping God as our refuge, to know who our Father is and that he loves us, that we can turn to him for living water. One last thing. Look at verse 7 or verse 11. The author repeats this a couple times. The Lord Almighty is with us. The Lord Almighty is with us. In Hezekiah's day, when he was king, God's glory and presence and refuge were centered around the physical city of Jerusalem, centered around the temple. So to have these things from God, you you prayed towards the temple, or if you could, you got to the temple, because this is where God's presence and protection were. This is where his refuge was. Your life centered around the temple. So that's what Hezekiah rightly called his people to. This is what God had instructed the kings of Israel to do. To worship him at the temple. And for a brief time in Judah's history, it was this way. God's glory was there. His presence was there. The people worshipped him there in the city of God. But eventually the people of Israel and Judah completely abandoned their covenant with God. And Israel was carted off into Assyria Judah was carted into Babylon, into exile. And the relationship with God and the temple was in shambles. The people were dispersed across the region. The safety and security of the city were gone. The temple of God's presence was gone and destroyed and in pieces. And the people had no physical place of a city of God, a refuge to run to anymore. And they worked hard for the next 400 years to bring it back, to try real hard to get that refuge to come back until Jesus comes along, right? 
Do you remember what he was called at his birth? Emmanuel. God with us. It's a refrain of this psalm here that the Lord Almighty is with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And when we study the scriptures and the narrative of Jesus, we find that we find Jesus where? He left the protection and the city and the refuge of God and was killed outside of the city on our behalf. Then we can now come to worship God anywhere. Because Jesus, by the Spirit, has put the kingdom of God in our hearts and in our midst by his Spirit. Rather than in a designated building, in a designated city, on earth, God is the city that we run to. God is the temple that we run to. God is our refuge, and he is the Spirit that dwells among us and in us. He is Emmanuel. God with us by his spirit. So when we worship Emmanuel as a way of life, we begin to realize he's with us even in the worst of life. We've trained ourselves to run to that refuge rather than to the others that shun us in our weakness. So in closing, I I just have a couple questions to maybe you process through. Maybe you write these down. Maybe think about them this week. How are you practicing running to God as a refuge in worship? In your daily life, what refuges are you running to? Are you running to performance or are you running to allowing yourself to be weak in God's presence? Maybe this week you can think about where your self-worth is, where your identity comes from. Are you allowing the wells outside of your life to feed the enemy who speaks these lies to you? who says, you can't be weak, you need to provide for yourself. When it comes to being still, maybe this week you take five minutes, five minutes of just quiet. And just think about who God is, who you are as not God, the created one, and just process that. And ask the Spirit to speak to you and confirm to you who God is and who you are in light of his divine nature. If you're more of a a meditation person, maybe you want to meditate on John 4 this week. Read the story of the woman at the well. Read the story of Jesus challenging her about going to other sources of life and how he offers himself to be living water to her. my prayer is that as we do this and believe in this identity from God, that we worship as a way of life, running to God as our refuge daily. And it prepares us for the worst that life throws at us. Would you pray with me?